me pray before we get into the word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gathered us together as a whole church today. And we pray that as we look at Titus, you may convict us of our sin, of the reality of our fallen world, so that we can see with a greater brightness the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the gift of salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, you know this. The world is not your home. We look to the Bible and Jesus said, the world is a place that causes many people to forfeit their very souls. The world, as you read scripture, tells us that it's ruled by Satan, the prince and power of the air. And his ideals, his opinions, his goals, his hopes seek to undo our faith. Spiritual deception, accusation, destruction are his weapons against us. And so do not underestimate the power of Satan. He has the capacity to perform great works of harm. In Job, he ignites fire by lightning. He sends destructive winds. He afflicts communities with diseases. Through his sinister influence, the world has become an aggressive system that hates Jesus and those who stand in his way. The world under the control of Satan is not your friend because the world is not your home. And I would like to just pause for a moment and think about our current cultural situation. We are now living in a post-Christian society. And the ideology that is shaping many young people today is secularism. And this is a system of doctrines and practices that seek to eliminate any talk of God from mainstream society. In other words, secularism is the attempt to live as if there is no God at all. In a secular culture, man reigns supreme. He sees himself as alone and free. In this worldview, God is either non-existent or now irrelevant. And the idea of a God with an expected moral order is offensive and invasive to our culture. And so the secular world, under the dominance of Satan, is not your friend nor is this place your home. But this is not an excuse to escape the culture, to isolate ourselves from the world. We are not called to be monastics living in the desert, free from any worldly harm. As God sent Jesus into the world to proclaim the good news of great joy, so he sends believers, me and you, into the world to proclaim good news of great joy to a world that is deeply deceived. Like Paul and Titus, we are, must follow them into the public square to live under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Christians, this does not mean staying to the speed limit, making sure that your lawn is mowed or paying your bills on times. While these are good things, in a secular society, we need to become a holy counterculture. A society within society. A new humanity 
within our old humanity. And so how do we become this counterculture? How do we become a holy people, a citizenship, citizens of heaven in a world that is, as we read scripture, declining and will come to, a get, to an end at any moment? How do we live as a counterculture of hope, of joy, of peace, of godliness in our current cultural moment? We need to understand who we once were and who we now are in Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to understand our identity, who we once were before Christ and who we now are in Christ. And Paul, the apostle in Titus, teaches us who we once were. And he's going to offend many of us today. We were once... And F word, fools. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, but Titus tells us at one time we too were foolish. Foolishness is a stubborn refusal to acknowledge the truth. Some scholars will say that this word foolish is trying to capture that our minds become irrational and unintelligent under the reign of darkness. And so feel the insult. It makes me feel insulted, but that's good. God offends us in order to save us. He teaches us that before we magnified Christ and all his glory, our minds did not understand obvious truths about him. Our brains were full of nonsense before we knew Jesus. Rather than devouring the word, our diet was Women's Weekly or Foxtel Sports or the useless babble that has no real meaning in our lives that we hear so much about under the sun. I recall before when I was not a Christian, when I was 15, on the brink of becoming a Christian, the useless babble that I filled my mind and heart was Xbox, which is a video game console. I was so obsessed with my Xbox that some days I would fake sick to my parents and stay in bed and say, oh, mum and dad, I can't move, I'm so sick, to stay home all day in order to play my Xbox 360. I used to love playing shooting games and Halo and Call of Duty and my friends too would take the day off in order to play all day long while our parents were at work. I was filling my mind with this useless, meaningless babble, which was Xbox 360. And one day, my dad came home early and he caught me. I had this long blue internet cord connecting from one room to the other and he saw that cord out and was furious. He came to our room, took the Xbox out of my (laughs) wall and took it over to his work site because it was right next door and got a hammer out and was going... He was faking, he put it in his shed, and he was trying to teach me a lesson. But I was under the influence, the dominance, the deception of my 360. And Titus teaches us that as fools, we were all under deception. From the time we were conceived, Satan lied to us. Since we are born into a dark world, we are born into a lie. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says... The God of this age, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. That's what Satan does. He's the master liar. And he deceives our minds so much that we cannot even see the glory of Christ glimpse into our eyes, our hearts. Satan, the God of the world, the ancient tempter, the father of lies, the roaring lion, the ruler of demons, our enemy, our adversary, and our murderer has one chief goal. Satan works for the abolition of God, the destruction of God, the destruction of our very souls. When people say, God is dead, Satan is filled with much pleasure. I was reading a journalist who said, I missed when God was real. Through his deception, he seeks to corrupt our minds, spreading false ideas about God to us. Satan the dragon, the serpent of old, will find your secret sin pleasure and even convince you, if he can't cause you to lose your faith, to affirm it. He'll send false teachers your way, cloaked as angels of light, to tell you what your itching ears want to hear. Through the art of trickery, Satan, the angel of the abyss, that dying serpent, will mislead you through every false ideal to ruin your identity and enslave you in this present age and keep you in a state of foolishness. Feel that. (laughs) Paul's trying to really warn us because he loves us. God is trying to warn us because he loves us. So I was deceived by my Xbox 360 at the age of 15. What lives have you been deceived by? Which is stopping you to live the abundant life in Jesus Christ. It gets even worse. Satan deceives you in order to enslave you. Look with me at verse 3 in your bulletin. We too are foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. This is the result of deception. Being slaves. If we're not under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, who are we under the rule and reign of? The God of this age. Darkness. This type of theology is black and white. There's no grey zone. Either under one Lord or you're under the other. And to be enslaved is full of meaning. It actually means to be in bondage to sin. Sin is better described as an uncontrollable thirst, a thirst that ultimately leads to spiritual death. I think of the story about a fox and a farmer who was in England. Over in England was a farmer. And one day he came out during a snowy winter day and he saw his chickens everywhere dead on the snowy ground. He knew that a fox had eaten them. And so he got a knife and rubbed chicken blood on that knife and then put that knife in his freezer. And so there was blood encoated on the knife. 
The next night, he put the knife upright in the snow. And during the night, the fox came again and he smelled the blood on that knife. And he began to lick the blood off the knife. And over time, all the blood disappeared, but the fox did not know that the blood had disappeared. He was now devouring his own blood to the point where his tongue was severed off. The fox scurried away into the woods. That was his last night, and he died. The farmer found him there, dead. The story of the enslaved fox is the future of the deceived, sin-enslaved fool who does not receive Christ as Lord. Paul said this famously, the wages of sin is death. And so if sin is a knife, what sin are you licking to your death? Think about that. Cringe about that. I received this image when I was younger and it really changed my direction in life. Sin has one desire, to eat your soul alive, to destroy you. And so every time we choose to sin, see it as that, licking a knife that will one day sever your soul. But do not be dismayed by that grim image. We've heard about the bad news today. I've just expounded about the bad news, but there is wonderful good news revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we turn to Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God given to man, given to a broken humanity on the the highway to hell is the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus, we are made alive. Salvation, this salvation given to us is a gift. It cannot be earned by controlling our sin. Salvation does not flow from keeping the law. Salvation is not a reward for living a better life. Salvation is simply given to people who cannot save themselves, people who are enslaved, and it gives us freedom. And it gives us salvation. And it gives us forgiveness. Salvation is an undeserved, unmerited, unearned gift that flows from the hands of our all-generous God to sinners. Our good deeds have no power to save us. There's nothing from within us, nothing from outside of us that can make us right with God. Charles Spurgeon said, the Prince of Preachers, the Lord saved his people out of clear unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace, and for no other reason. God has saved you if you love Jesus because he saved you. There's nothing that you could do to receive that gift. It is freely given to you from God. God did not say to you, you need to do that and that and that and that and then you can take my gift. It is freely given to you to people on life support. And this is the gospel of amazing grace. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the Lord's demands. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. From beginning to end, from start to finish, our redemption is the free gift of our loving God. 
So I want to ask you the question. You've heard the bad news about Satan, about sin, about being enslaved, about being deceived. Is this good news for you that you can now be in relationship with God, not on accordance with your own good deeds, but because of the price Jesus paid on the cross? Is this good news for you, the gift of salvation in Christ? Have you received this gift? gets even crazier. Many pastors overlook this. We're looking now at the how of salvation. Which builds upon this point of it being a free gift. God saves the people through the, verse 5, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's how salvation comes to us. Rebirth and renewal can also be regeneration. Through the Spirit, the grace of God is applied to our hearts even before we could choose Christ. We'll look more about we'll look at this point more in John chapter three in the coming weeks, but Through the Spirit, we are born again to new life. And we don't even make that decision. The breath of God makes us into a new creation when it blows upon us. We're given a brand new heart and new desires and they're implanted within us. When the Spirit blows upon us, it opens up our hearts and makes our hearts new. It is God's gracious work from A to Z. Faith, repentance and true discipleship are not possible apart from the Holy Spirit. First, awakening us from our inescapable spiritual slumber. J.I. Packer said, Regeneration is entirely the work of God, the Holy Spirit. It raises the elect, the spiritually dead, to new life in Christ. Charles Spurgeon also said, Regeneration is not an act of our free will and power, but of the mighty, effective, and irresistible grace of God. And so from beginning to end, our salvation, even from this point, is fully the work of God's sovereign work in your heart. Our salvation is fully the work of God. You don't contribute anything to it, even the declaration of faith, because as you declare Christ is Lord, Christ has already saved you because he's given you that affection to respond in faith. And I remember when I was born again, I was 16. I was living a rebellious, sinful life. I was 16, partying, getting absolutely sloshed with my friends. Drunk is what I mean by that. Addicted to video games. Swearing, I had the worst tongue under the sun, which you would hear definitely on those bodyboarding waves that I used to swim on. I was rebellious, addicted also to rugby league and only cared about myself. So my parents invited me to go down to a youth conference in a place called Poetina in Tasmania. At this stage I was enslaved to sin, 
It was eating out my soul. I had no hope. But during the conference, the Holy Spirit was doing a work in my heart, illuminating me to the truth. I sat in church my whole life, but I had never heard the gospel, even though it was probably preached every single week. That took the point where a youth pastor, who was like around 22 years old, sat down with me and asked, where are you at, Jesse? And as I sat there, he began to read Romans to me. And I felt for the first time my condemnation, my hopelessness before God, my sin that I was not even aware of. And before I even uttered repentance, confession of sin, and this might sound strange to some of you, I felt a rushing waterfall over me. I felt like I was being cleansed deep from within. As I was reading the scriptures about our hope in Christ. From that point, as I look back, I could say that I was born again. As I repented of my sin that day, I was filled with a joy that I had never experienced before. When I came home, mum said, what are you on? Because I came in the house like this. Just full of joy, happiness. It's like a weight had gone off my shoulders. And from that time, I was called to preach. Literally two weeks later, I was at youth group preaching. (laughs) I said, break out of the box. Do not be a mediocre believer. Surrender all to Jesus. (laughs) The fruit of being born again. Friends, I was given a new status before God. I was no longer a fool, but I was now a royal child of God, the Heavenly Father. Jesus became my brother. I was a co-heir with him. I became a citizen of heaven through the work of the Holy Spirit deep within my heart. I was born again. Verse 7 of Titus, since we have been justified by his grace, we become heirs with the confident expectation of eternal life. I'd like to stress that phrase, we become heirs of God. From the courthouse of heaven, God now declares us right in his sight. And yes, we're still polluted by sin, but he now looks at us and sees that we are clothed with the blood of Christ and are now precious, just as Christ, his son, is precious. Since we are reborn of the Spirit, we are given a brand new identity and status before God. We are adopted into his family. We become people who are guaranteed eternal life. We now live with a deep assurance of faith that no matter what happens in this life, we are going to make it to the end. We're going to persevere because we are now saints of God. We are citizens of heaven. We are born again children of the Father. What wonderful news is the grace of God. 
I've experienced it. And due to my experience and encounter with this grace, I yearn for others to encounter it. That's why I do what I I do. That's why I'm here in Scone, leaving my home. I'd love to be in Camden Haven, riding those waves there, but I'm here for a purpose. To help you behold the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. What wonderful news is the grace of God. But there's a kicker. And Paul drives it home for us in the Bible. And I said this last week. When we become heirs of God, we become heirs of God. Royal children are now called to have royal manners. We must move beyond baby behavior. The lust and sins of our youth to maturity in faith under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. We're called to live out our new status as heirs of God. Upright, holy, godly, a counterculture to our current culture. And this is all summarized for us in verses 1 and 8. Be ready for every good deed and be careful to engage in good deeds. Titus must urge the people to be godly, for godliness is excellent and profitable to everyone. It is profitable to you and your family. It is profitable to your church and workplace. It is profitable to the society and the world at large. Godliness is key. It is the fruit of being born again. It is expected for those who are given the status of heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And godliness is one of our chief weapons of success in mission. To win the culture for Christ, people need to encounter Christ in culture. The Bible therefore says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Our fearless lives, our holiness, are the arms we take up each day to bring cultural revolution, to bring reformation to not only the church but the world at large. We remake culture by building a brand new culture, a culture that is shaped by the way of Jesus Christ. And so when royals march in triumphant godliness, a world overcome by Satan will be silenced. It will be startled. And guess what? It might even be saved. Our royal lives will alert the world to the universal reign of Jesus Christ, who is the true true ruler of this age. And the good news is this. He's already won. Satan, his power was crushed on the cross of Christ. Satan is now living out his final days, trying to take down as many people with him. Satan would love to see hell as full as possible. 
But friends, I would like you to cling to the gift of grace today. Because through grace, we do not have to fear death or Satan. We are now children and heirs of God, the conquering king who has already won. So I want to ask you this final question today. Does the world know that you are an heir of God? Does the world know your status before God? Does the world know that you are a royal child of God? When people look at your life, do they say, He's weird! (laughs) She's different! Or, I wonder what drives her to do that! So many people are surprised. Why give your life to the work of that? Some people might be surprised why you're even here today. Isn't that a waste of time? You could be working, getting some more money. You could be watching the golf on TV. You could be reading Women's Weekly. But you're here. This is all surprising behaviour. And I want to encourage you to live as a child of God, an heir of God, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Because when we're not ashamed of the gospel, people encounter Christ through our lives. And so let me close with this simple statement. Those who are born again were once fools, but they are now royals. And so be who you are in Christ. This is your identity. Live it out. Be faithful to God. Be who you are in Christ. Amen.